0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan.
1: And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, when the volcano erupts, when the ship runs aground on a desert island, when disaster of whatever form strikes, will you be prepared?
0: Well, I don't want to brag, but I did read Gary Paulson's Hatchet in elementary school, so I think it's safe to say that I know my way around a life-or-death situation in the wild.
1: That's good to know that you've done your homework, but Kevin, are you prepared for dinosaurs by any chance?
0: Uh, I would probably not do well in that situation because I would just be so awestruck that and wanting to touch them that... Bad things would probably happen in that case, sadly.
1: (laughs) Well, it's a good thing that we have Adam Driver along with us for that particular survival situation. Protect us, Adam Driver. (laughs) Listeners, this week we are going to be reviewing 65, starring Adam Driver.
0: We're also going to be taking a look at the 2013 film All is Lost, featuring Robert Redford in his own life or death struggle on the high seas on episode 373 of Seeing and Believing. Location unknown.
1: Charter 373, this is Commander Mills. My ship was hit by an undocumented asteroid. Transporting 35 passengers on a long-range
0: exploratory
1: mission. Send help.
0: Welcome to episode 373 of the show, listeners. We are going to be taking a couple of steps back from the overall tenor of the last week's episode <laughs> where we plumbed the spiritual depths of Godland and Pascal's wager with my night at mods we're going to talk about spacemen fighting dinosaurs in this I, episode
1: i mean that could be a spiritual experience depending on how you feel about the movies we're going to be talking about
0: <laughs> we are going well we are going to be talking about two doozies uh in the watchlist segment i picked uh the robert redford one-hander all is lost to pair up with kind of a survivalist theme with the new release that we're talking about here in this first segment. We're talking about 65. This was a film that I had on my most anticipated films of the first part of the year So, of course, we're going to talk about it on the show. Here's the synopsis. This is the new film from Scott Beck and Brian Woods. The writer-directors of this film are maybe best known for writing the 2018 breakout hit, A Quiet Place, and they waste no time in getting to the point with this new film. By the time the title comes up on screen, we know that it's set 65 million years in the past, Our hero, played by Adam Driver, is Mills, a member of an advanced, non-Earthling civilization, and he is about to have a very bad time of things when his spaceship crash-lands on an Earth that is still ruled by the dinosaurs. Driver left his family in order to take a two-year job ferrying passengers to and fro among the stars. After the crash, only Mills and one other passenger remain, a girl named Koa, who just might remind Mills of the daughter he left behind. The rest of the film follows Mills and Coa as they dodge prehistoric monsters of all sorts on their way to an escape pod that might be their only ticket out of there. So I did mention that this is sort of a survivalist episode of Seeing and Believing. So maybe we can start there when for our discussion of 65. Sarah, how well does this movie do at getting you invested in the survival of the central duo?
1: I mean, I'm invested in the survival of Adam Driver, so there's that. (laughs) As far as what the movie itself is doing in order to keep us invested, there's not a lot of there there. And the movie is telling us a lot about what we need to know about these characters, but it isn't really giving us very many reasons to root for them beyond... The fact that the movie seems to think that we're supposed to root for them just based on the fact that they are the protagonists. So I don't know. This movie also features a central relationship, which is very clearly modeled off Ripley and Newt's relationship from Aliens. There are multiple scenes that feel like they're directly quoting, if not stealing from that movie. And I think we can talk about that a little bit. But if you're going to reference an action survival movie as great as Aliens, I think you need to have central characters that are as well-rounded and well-realized as the characters at the center of Aliens. And we don't really get that here. We get very broad brushstrokes. We know that Mills is a father. We know that he is a ship's captain. That's basically it. We know even less about Koa because she and Mills have a language barrier between the two of them. The movie doesn't do a very good job pulling off their ability to bond beside, like beyond that language barrier. It's an interesting conceit, and it feels like that could be an interesting obstacle on these characters' journeys, but ultimately... It feels kind of perfunctory because those characters are always going to be able to get from point A to point B anyway, regardless of what gets thrown in their path. So I don't know. A lot of this movie feels like a foregone conclusion, and maybe that's because of the framing device. This movie tells us right up that it is happening 65 million years ago. It tells us immediately who Adam Driver's character is, and it tells us how and why he's present on Earth, and I feel like... With the proper framing, it didn't need to be a mystery movie, but I don't think it needed to tell us the twist right off the bat, because once you know the twist, there's almost no there there. And a good movie can survive you knowing the twist about it, but this movie isn't even able to hold up under telling you everything and showing its cards on the table literally right at the opening titles, so... You did say that this was your one of your most anticipated movies of the first half of the year. Did it live up to your expectations?
0: I mean, I <laughs> disappointment springs eternal <laughs> when it comes to me and blockbuster movies. I I do always kind of hope for you know a, a good time. Um, I don't necessarily expect them to be masterpieces, but I, I hope that when I go to see a movie like Sixty Five. I'm at least going to have a a grand rollicking old time, even if on the drive home, maybe I kind of think myself out of liking it a little bit uh, more. Um, And I have had blockbusters like that. Godzilla vs. Kong is not a smart movie. It's not a great movie, but I had a lot of fun with it. It delivered the goods. It had Godzilla fighting King Kong, and there was lots of weird, interesting things going on around in the margins. I enjoyed it. 65, I think, is... it's It makes so many wrong-headed decisions. It's almost as if uh, Scott Beck and Brian Woods are purposely trying to buck against... Like, subverts, maybe? Hmm. Kind of the... the Good solid bones of of storytelling the the fact that there's a language barrier between Mills and koa means that their relationship doesn't really feel sticky um, there's not really a whole lot of attention paid to atmosphere there there's and and this kind of ties into your point about the you know, the twist kind of being front-loaded at the very beginning mm-hmm. is that, again, we, we don't necessarily need to be wondering, gosh, where are they? Because, you know, we've seen the trailers. We kind of know where they are. Mm-hmm. But because it's so earthbound f- right from the start, there's just, there's no attempt to build any sort of mystery, any sort of gravity that's drawing us into this movie and and making us buy into any of the kind of the, dynamics it's playing with whether it's the you know surrogate father-daughter relationship or whether it's the kind of horror movie light uh, aspects with the dinosaurs or the survivalist aspect where it's just part of the fun is just kind of watching the characters improvise in order to stay one step ahead of the reaper like any one of those things is a solid foundation for a film and they're all kind of floating around in this movie, but they never are grounded in anything. And so it becomes kind of impossible to become absorbed by it. And any time that I felt like I was beginning to get on its wavelength, there would be a a needless jump scare or just a, a strange editing decision to cut away from a sequence before it really felt fully come to fruition that just really... It yanked me right out of it again. Again, it feels like Beck and Woods, if I didn't know better, I would think that they were doing something kind of avant-garde and really trying to subvert the audience's expectations. I don't think that's what's going on here, though. I just think it's not a very well-made movie.
1: I think it's kind of impressive how straight they play the entire premise and everything, too. It's funny, speaking of the atmosphere— a lot of this movie felt very uncanny to me for about the first half until I was able to put my finger on it, which is that this is a sci-fi film with two characters that was shot in the woods of Oregon, which automatically makes me think this probably would have aired pretty well on the sci-fi channel in about 2007 or so, except it doesn't fit in the sci-fi channel mold because it's nowhere near zany enough to have aired on sci-fi. Um And that, I think, is my biggest disappointment. I will confess, I did actually have fun with 65, despite myself.
0: To be fair, you also had a good time with Morbius. So (laughs) (laughs) we'll we'll just put an asterisk next to that for for context.
1: There's no accounting for taste. And I know what I like, and I like very dumb movies on occasion. (laughs) I think it really helps that Adam Driver is really trying to sell this movie. Like, he's, he's working with a level of gravitas. He's treating the script with a certain amount of respect that I don't think the script has necessarily fully earned. But because Adam Driver believes in it, I kind of was willing to go along with him, or at least with Mills. The moment that Mills starts interacting with anything else in the environment or even interacting with Koa, I started to lose it a little bit because it's very difficult to act across Adam Driver. This is absolutely nothing against child actors. It's A hard job, and it's a hard job to do when you're dealing with an actor of Driver's caliber. But when it's just him acting afraid or acting despondent at his situation, I feel like I was willing to go along with the movie a little bit more because he seemed to believe it and he seemed to buy the stakes. And again, the rest of the movie isn't quite up to that caliber because the movie doesn't seem to believe in its own stakes or it doesn't feel like it's willing to commit to the truly zany premise it's just so serious and so flat and that affect just kind of sticks there for the course of the entire runtime that there really wasn't any dramatic i don't know i i never wondered for a second whether these characters were going to be able to get off planet because it just didn't feel like there was any sense that they were going to be able to fail because this just doesn't really feel like that kind of movie and maybe again it's because of that signaling at the top of the film where we know where they are and we know what they're doing and we know that the premise is we're going to drop adam driver on earth 65 million years ago i don't know um i appreciate his level of commitment i kind of wish that the movie had been willing to rise to his caliber i i don't feel like
0: this movie trusts its audience very much if i mean it it definitely plays like one of those films where the studio kept giving notes because they were worried that the audience wasn't going to be able to follow along with somebody, something or they were worried that a character wasn't likable enough. And so things get piled on top of other things, hats on top of hats, until you kind of the, the movie kind of loses sight of what it's even trying to do. And I think that watching this movie is kind of an exercise in wondering... Just what exactly, like, how how did this take shape in uh, the director's mind? Because it's not so much, like you said, something just feels a little bit off. For, for example, Koa um, is not a particularly compelling character. No, No shade to the child actress. It's just that she doesn't really have a character to play. She's almost... She, there's a language barrier, of course, but the way that she's been written and directed, it's almost as if she's mute or or has like some sort of mm-hmm. like some sort of something else going on besides just not speaking the same language as Driver's character. She she doesn't communicate. She doesn't seem like a person who speaks another language. She seems, she seems like a person who has forgotten how to speak mm-hmm. and and kind of like gesticulates and and. Uh, carries herself like somebody who's not used to using language at all. Mm. Which, again, it feels like it might be indebted a little bit to Newt from Aliens because Newt is so traumatized, and that's kind of part of her character. But the way Koa is written, she's kind of just more or less a normal space-faring child. There's Mm -hmm. nothing to explain why she should be this way, which, again, just it means that the... Her interactions ring hollow, which means the relationship rings hollow, which means that it snaps under the weight with as hard as the movie leans on, making us care about this surrogate father-daughter relationship. Because mm-hmm. it works so hard to really make us care. And it's impossible to when these characters really feel like they haven't been uh, fully conceived. If, if It feels like the the storytellers kind of just... Are working in shorthand rather than directing their actors to embody actual, well, not actual humans because they're not actual humans, <laughs> but people. They're they're Star Wars humans. I don't know, like they, they're from a solar system long ago and far away. But you know that they're they just don't feel like people. Pers- mm. They don't feel like persons.
1: And that's a problem. I I do think that Adam Driver's character does feel like a person, but I don't think that that's due to the script. I think that's purely Adam Driver's embodiment of him. I feel like it's rare that we get to see him play tender, And he does get to do that at a couple of points in this movie, both when he's interacting with his own daughter back home and then in flashbacks and then very occasionally when he's interacting with Koa as well. He does get to be gentle and you see a lot of that in his eyes and in his face and in the way that he holds himself. And one thing that I do want to credit the movie for is it gives him the ability to give a physical performance where you see a lot of that movement and that physicality on screen. It's not a particularly well-edited movie. Like like you mentioned, there are dramatic beats and scenes that are kind of undercut by the way that the film cuts away to a new sequence. But on occasion, there is action, and we do get to see Adam Driver commit to action is in is it in front of a green screen absolutely can we actually see the monsters that he's fighting no we cannot because again they are also CGI but He does get the ability to move and kind of expand beyond the bounds of this movie. And maybe the problem is that the movie is trying to restrain itself or tie itself into too many knots to try to live up to that framing premise. And I really do think that if you get rid of the framing and you deepen the relationships a little bit, there is something good here. It's just not the product that was delivered.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, maybe we can we can turn our attention to those dinosaurs because, okay, if the if the central relationship is you know not necessarily the the most fleshed out, that's not necessarily a fatal flaw for a movie like this because now I can't speak for you, but speaking for myself, I came into this movie kind of just really hoping to see some good old fashioned dinosaur mayhem, mm-hmm. you know, like that's that's kind of if. I don't need to buy into the central relationship. I would hope that a movie about a spaceman fighting dinosaurs would make that conflict really uh, fun. (laughs) Uh, Fun, exciting, uh, thrilling, scary. Those are all directions they could go. It seems like Beck and Woods really wanted to kind of almost go for a quasi-horror feeling. Mm -hmm. The way that they um frame some of the early sequences of dinosaurs where we don't necessarily see a T-Rex, but we see the, the treetops moving as a T-Rex moves among them. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, Mills is standing on a, a cliff overlooking uh, a valley, and we get a glimpse of... Of Of a T-rex walking below him before there's a jump scare in the foreground and we the, and then we lose it.
1: which I jumped at for which the record.
0: I, I jumped at as well, and it made me angry because it felt like the movie it was it was trying to give some horror frisson to what it was doing, but it wasn't bothering to create the atmosphere that would make mm. those kinds of filmmaking tactics feel in a feel in place Mm -hmm. it felt to me like they they were sort of trying to give us horror set pieces without doing any of the hard work of really drawing us into a movie where it is actually horrifying to be on a prehistoric planet surrounded by giant lizard monsters (laughs) that's that would be really cool i don't think that the way that they ultimately edit together these shots frame them um use sound and subtle cues to, you know, kind of get the audience on the edge of their seat. It's just sort of, it feels pro forma. And that's very disappointing.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That outline of the T-Rex in the rain feels like it's referencing the original Jurassic Park and Mm -hmm. the problem with referencing Spielberg is you're automatically kind of comparing yourself to him as a filmmaker and he's so good at building that tension and that atmosphere and that emotion that almost anything else is going to fall flat in comparison and here it's just the reference. There's no building on top of it, unless you want to say that a spaceman crash landing to Earth is building on top of kind of that conceit of humans and dinosaurs interacting together. But again, that's literally just bringing the premise into it. It isn't really adding anything in terms of visual storytelling or even thematic storytelling. I do wonder if this movie had been willing to commit to being a little bit more gross if it could have potentially worked and i'm curious to know how you felt about all the bugs
0: so um the the peter jackson remake of king kong uh has a lengthy sequence in its second act that reminded me that this film reminded me a lot of where mm-hmm. the, the explorers have just landed on Skull Island. Kong hasn't yet made his appearance and they're just sort of hacking their way through the jungle and being assaulted by all manner of giant, disgusting things. One of, you know, there's a, a sequence where, um, some of the exploring party like falls into a gorge and get devoured by giant uh, like tapeworms or something. Oh, no, it's, thank you. It, it's horrifying. It's a horrifying sequence. And it, Peter Jackson, uh finds the exact right balance between it being sort of like you 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 almost want to giggle at how disgusting it is, mm-hmm. but it's also creepy and and scary at the same time, and it's that kind of showman's instinct that I think you really need in order to make that kind of a movie work where it's just one darn thing after another right that's also a time honored tradition for uh you know kind of a a genre picture. And but this one, again, it feels like we get a sequence where Koa has an encounter with a with a creepy crawly in her mouth. Mm-hmm. and it's gross, but it also doesn't get any time to breathe. It, it's maybe like uh, 60 seconds of the movie, mm-hmm. and then it's immediately on to the next thing. And I think that's just it's a pacing issue. It's a directing issue, It's an editing issue where, it feels like it just kind of wants to get to the next theme park attraction, and it doesn't allow itself to breathe. You contrast that to something like the, the initial T-Rex attack in Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park, where he takes his time getting the characters there stuck in the rain, letting them see the, that the goat's gone, the water vibrating in the cup. All those things are little touches that build up and build up and build up, so it feels like there's a rising and falling action that feels totally satisfying when you're seeing it in the theater Mm -hmm. this does not feel satisfying because that pacing isn't there
1: and we also care about the characters in spielberg's movie and again there's there's not much tying together these characters in this movie either that being said i feel like we might be potentially being hard on 65 i can't believe that i'm defending this movie because again it's not a good movie (laughs) but it's about the same level of depth and thought as your typical B movie horror from the 1950s. And part of me wonders, having seen something like Forbidden Planet, where you get a group of people who are just sort of perfunctly pushing buttons and then crash landing on a planet, discovering that they are not necessarily alone and then having to kind of fight their way off. I honestly get about the same level of emotional depth and rev- resonance from something like Forbidden Planet as I do from a movie like this one. And part of me wonders if we're being potentially a little bit too hard. And I have I was sort of repeating to myself, like, it's just a show. I should merely just relax, you know, in the grand mystery science theater <laughs> 3000 tradition. I don't know. Like, on the one hand, I do feel slightly insulted by the level of depth and thought that was put into making this movie. On the other hand, I had fun, and I don't fully know how to square that circle in saying this movie was bad and I had fun, and also this movie is probably about as bad as other, you know, formative sci-fi, and I'm not entirely sure what to make of that instinct.
0: I mean, I don't know. I th- I think it's it's difficult to quantify because I feel like a lot of it is just in the execution. It's not so much that a movie... Like if if you were to just describe to me what happens in this movie, that sounds fun. Mm-hmm. Sitting and watching it though is an entirely different experience. I, I talk about that that one jump scare where we're just we're kind of craning our necks with Adam Driver's character to get a good look at that T Rex. What a great moment! It's so exciting, and then there's a jump scare that immediately chops it off at the knees mm-hmm. and you know goose's you and kind of distracts you. And it it made me it frustrated me, mm-hmm. and I think that that's really what you don't want a fun genre picture like this to do is to frustrate the audience you need to deliver the goods in some way whatever those goods might be mm-hmm. you have to know what they are and you have to know how to deliver them <laughs> yeah. and i feel like uh beck and woods just they they have a they might have had a few good ideas for sequences and i think there are some there's a a sequence kind of underground against uh, an underground dinosaur with uh, proximity detectors
1: which is it's fun that's funny because that was actually the sequence that worked least for me
0: i i mean i don't i don't again i don't think it's perfectly executed i think the germ of the idea where it's dark and we kind of see this proximity detector hologram, show us things that Driver's character can't see. Hmm. That's an interesting germ of an idea for a suspense sequence. Um, And I feel like that's kind of the story of this picture from beginning to end, is they had a lot of great germs of ideas, but when it came to executing them into a fully satisfying ebb and flow... That's where it falls down.
1: Hmm. So maybe the lesson learned here is don't submit your first draft necessarily.
0: I I mean, who knows how many, maybe this went through too many drafts and that's the problem.
1: That is also entirely (laughs) possible too. Uh,
0: Well, listeners, uh, that is our review of 65. Uh, It was one of my most anticipated films of this early part of the year. Sadly I was disappointed, but maybe it was not the same story for some of you out there. If so, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. You can tweet us at CBelievePod, or you can head on over to Letterboxd, also at C Believe Pod and comment on our log entry for this film. Mm-hmm. We'd love to hear from you uh, and your thoughts on this film. Stick around. We're going to have some survivalism on the high seas with all is lost in the watchlist segment here in a bit. And now it's time for the conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from listeners out there, where what we've been kind of observing in the wider world of cinema. Mm-hmm. And of course, there was a lot of conversation going on this past weekend because it was the Oscars mm-hmm. and. What a night everything, everywhere, all at once had, right?
1: Yeah, I'm honestly really happy for this movie. I was kind of expecting a sweep just based on other awards that had been coming up. But it is so good to see Michelle Yeoh and Ke Hui Kwan be honored for their work. Um, I think that's honestly the two awards that I'm happiest about coming out of the Oscars.
0: I was overjoyed that Kei Hui Kwan won uh, Best Supporting Actor. He just so richly deserved one of my favorite performances of last year Mm -hmm. and i mean what a guy he just seems like just a great person in general so i was really happy to see him take home the statue i was surprised though that everywhere all at once everything everywhere all at once did as well as it as it did not because it's a bad film i just i expected the academy to maybe go in a different direction i thought maybe tar or the fablemans would have would have uh put up stiffer resistance but I guess not
1: yeah I mean maybe
0: in a alternate universe
1: (laughs) it is a weird movie like it's an indie film it's a sci-fi movie it's not something that you would have considered to be an Oscar contender and I don't think anybody seriously thought that it would have been an Oscar contender back when it first came out it just kind of became a juggernaut and I'm really happy to see that it got recognized for just incredible storytelling. I was actually listening to some of my coworkers talking at lunch today on the day that we're recording this, and they were all talking about how happy they were that Everything Everywhere All at Once won the Oscars. And these are people who don't go to the movies at all that frequently, but they do pay somewhat attention. And it was nice to hear that, I don't know, it felt like the Academy sort of got something right.
0: It seems like that's the kind of a story I've been hearing again and again about this film is that people who, you know, don't consider themselves the most plugged into, you know, the cinema scene, who don't necessarily see all the Oscar nominees, who don't consider themselves arthouse fans, see everything everywhere all at once, which is outside of their comfort zone and just come away, not just having enjoyed it, but kind of having their... Perspective on movies rewritten a little bit. Mm -hmm. It it seems like it's one of those films that is broadening a lot of horizons for a lot of people. And hey, like we've all been there where we have that one movie that just kind of, you know, rejiggers our brain to love cinema just that little bit more. So it's really nice to see that get recognized by the Academy.
1: I honestly want to see more, more weirdness, more from these actors, more from these directors. A couple of other things, the Academy actually picked a good song for best original song for once in its mm-hmm. life.
0: <laughs> RRR, I mean, it was, again, another movie you wouldn't necessarily expect a lot of American audiences to go for, but richly deserved as well.
1: Yeah, Natu Natu is a bop. I went and <laughs> watched it immediately after finding out that it had won, and that song holds up even outside of the context of the movie, too. I,
0: I'm not going to lie. I have. A couple of times, fired up Netflix just to watch a couple of scenes from RRR. You know, nice. I don't necessarily always have the full three hours to sit down and watch it from beginning to end, but I'll sit down and I'll watch a sequence or two from that movie and just enjoy myself as much as I did the first time I saw it.
1: It's the kind of movie that makes me kind of wish that the Oscars had a best stunts award because the stunts in that movie are also pretty incredible and the action sequences are, are breathtaking.
0: I I love the action sequence where one of the main characters is riding around on the shoulders of the other yes. uh, central <laughs> character and having a fight scene like that. What a, again, great action sequence, great stunts, great movie.
1: Fills me with joy. Any other Oscars news that you were excited about?
0: Um, You know, I was... I, I was expecting and kind of hoping that Kate Blanchett would win Best Actress. That said, I really liked Michelle Yeoh in Everything Ever All at Once, so it was nice to see her uh, get recognized. Um, I liked Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, so it was nice to see that get recognized as well.
1: Stop motion movie getting recognized by the Oscars. We got also we got to keep joy.
0: we got to keep the that art form alive, man. It can't all be computer generated animation. Got to. Keep the the old fires burning. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Um, Well, uh, now that we've put the Oscars to bed, though, it's time to look forward to the future. And we've got a couple of upcoming attractions for Seeing and Believing that I'm really excited to share with all you listeners so that you can keep an eye out for them on your feeds. So we have been doing lately a bonus episode, one per month. And we've got a really special one for the March bonus episode, which should be going up next week Mm -hmm. Um, this is the first seeing and believing crossover ever we had a chance to sit down with another podcast host from the truce podcast to talk about the 1960 film inherit the wind Now, for any of you who aren't familiar with it, the Truce podcast is a history show that focuses on the history of the church, and the current season of the podcast is all about the fundamentalist movement of the early 20th century, and of course, you can't really talk about that without at least bringing up the Scopes Monkey Trial, which is the event on which Inherit the Wind is based. So we sat down with Chris, uh, chatted about not just what we thought about the movie, but also what we thought about the historical context surrounding it. It was a really great conversation. All three of us enjoyed ourselves immensely. And that'll be going up both in our feed and the Truce podcast feed. If you want to subscribe to that one as well, you can catch it in both places.
1: Mm-hmm. And possibly also catch up on some of the additional context within Truce. You can listen to just our episode. We're just talking about the movie and about some of that surrounding context. But if you are interested, you can also head on over to Truce too.
0: Yeah, he's uh, Chris has done a, a, a multiple episodes on William Jennings Bryan. So there's a lot of, of context that you don't have to just listen to our episode. You can get some of that context listening to previous episodes in this season as well. Now, uh, moving to purely seeing and believing content. I'm actually really excited about the Patreon exclusive episode, Sarah, that you're going to be recording with, uh, not with me but with our producer, Jonathan.
1: Amazing, rare, powerful appearance by (laughs) our beloved producer. So Jonathan found out that I have never seen the original Rocky. I think this came about when we were talking about Creed 3, when we reviewed that a couple of episodes ago. And so Jonathan said that he would like to sit down and talk with me about Rocky. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to sit down and do just that. And that'll will be on our patreon feed so not in the podcast feed but over on the patreon so if you want to go over there and support us maybe throw a few dollars our way um, we would love to have you and we would love to share that episode with you
0: yeah and if you do throw a few dollars our way not only will you get access to some of these patreon exclusive episodes but you also get other perks thrown in as well we have the the kind of the movie dictator tier i'm not sure exactly (laughs) what to call it I, i call it the movie dictator tier where if you pledge it ten dollars a month once a year you get to pick a movie and make us talk about it on the air so now that can be a new release we've had uh patrons uh have us check out a a film that has recently come out that they just really want to see get more exposure we've also had patrons have us review beloved classics uh sarah your dad who's a a patron Mm -hmm. has talked about rear window which Always a good treat to talk about Hitchcock on the air.
1: Definitely. Yeah. So if you want to support us, support the show, um, help us keep Jonathan happy as well, um, you can head on over to Patreon slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. So now we're going to go to the watch list, which, Kevin, as you know, every week one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen. We watch it and then we discuss it. And usually there's some sort of a connection between our new release, and our watch list. So, Kevin, you mentioned that this is our survival edition of seeing and believing. I think you can also make it a little bit of a stretch and say astronauts are mariners of a sort. So you've got Mm. solitary mariners, marooned, stretched past potentially their limits and trying to... Reach another person, get help, get survival. So that's my Galaxy Brain connection.
0: I, I, I like that. And that, that's you know, that's one of the reasons we keep you around is to provide <laughs> that stuff. I wouldn't have made that connection, but I'm digging it.
1: Excellent. So this week we are discussing 2013's All Is Lost. Um, which, as you mentioned, is a one-hander. There's only one person on screen at any given time in this movie, and it's the same person, it's Robert Redford, who plays a sailor whose boat is damaged in a collision with a shipping container. So he finds himself facing down obstacle after obstacle, stretching the limits of his ingenuity until the only thing left for him to confront is his own mortality as he floats alone on the Indian Ocean. This movie is almost completely silent, which was something that really struck me as I was watching it. I wasn't expecting it to be so quiet. Um, And it really feels like a study in visual storytelling. I would love to know what the script looks like for All is Lost. So, Kevin, I'm curious to know, is that silent mode of storytelling here just an exercise? Or do you find additional depths in All is Lost?
0: depths i i like it uh to 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 really quickly give some trivia about this film uh about the script specifically uh i believe the shooting script was about 30 pages long wow um and the the amount of dialogue is there are 51 english words of dialogue in the film total wow so some statistics to give you an idea of just how committed this movie is to nonverbal uh portrayals of this sailor kind of figuring out how he's going to make it um and i think that yeah i there's this quote from pauline kale that all you need for a movie is a guy a girl and a gun (laughs) but i think on the evidence of this movie all you really need is a guy in a boat (laughs) (laughs) and the, the that's really all you need there is just um one person trying to survive and to answer your question about depths, I think mm-hmm. that's where I find the depths is just watching this the sailor uh, named in the credits as our man. Obviously, we don't learn his name because he's the only one on screen, mm-hmm. but he's he's our man, and I think that's very intentional that he's called that because uh, he is so easy to identify with. Just in terms of he wants to live, he wants to survive um he doesn't have to have any sort of screenwriterly uh want that uh is is providing the dramatic tension all he needs to want is not to die not to sink below the waves to somehow make it back to the world of of humans mm-hmm. um and that i think is it's so primal and it also i think invites the viewer not just to sympathize and empathize with him but also just to reflect on why it's so important to want to survive Hmm. why why is it so important especially as the movie goes on and his situation gets more and more dire you know what's keeping him going we kind of learned that he is maybe estranged from some loved ones in his life um that he almost prefers solitude towards connection. So when things keep going worse and worse for him and just the act of survival is so difficult, why does he keep going? Is it just an animal sort of instinct or is there something larger going on there? I think the way J.C. Chandor directs this, I think it suggests that it's not just a purely animal will to not die. I think he's suggesting there's something deeper um, and almost spiritual in that struggle. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I really appreciate that.
1: Yeah. I want to touch on that solitary piece a little bit because I think it's noticeable that our man never really talks to himself. I don't know about you, but when I am home alone, I am talking to the dog constantly. And if the dog is not around, then I am talking to myself constantly. Maybe that's a sign of a restless mind. I don't know. But Our man, I think, is so comfortable in his own skin. And I love the way that Robert Redford plays him because he's very assured. He clearly knows what he's doing. He doesn't panic even when there's a hole that's literally been gouged in the side of his sailboat. He wakes up practically underwater when we first meet him. And instead of panicking, instead of rushing around, he takes calm stock of the situation. He figures out what he's able to do about it. And then he just goes about and does it. And I love that the script and his performance don't talk down to the audience. They just show him going about his business without him having to explain to us what is going on. He never mumbles to himself, well, I'm going to tie this knot here, or I'm going to try to use these pieces in order to fix the boat. The movie is patient, and it gives us a taste of that patience through Redford's performance of Man. And I think in so doing, it gives us a lot of information about who he is as a character without ever having to directly tell us anything about him. I love that we pick up on the fact that he is probably estranged from some loved ones in his life without ever having to be given that verbal cue. Maybe there is a little bit of a verbal cue because there's kind of a prologue in which we hear him read a letter that says all is lost. I have nothing left but soul and body and there's not much of that either. Um, And then we get the flashback to eight days previously where we figure out how he's going to end up in the situation that he's in. So the idea of all being lost is a foregone conclusion. It's literally in the movie's title And I think this is an instance where the movie telling us that framing incident actually really works because it's able to back up that information by showing us who this character is and giving us reasons to care about him without having to tell us how or why we care about him. We just need to be able to spend that time in companionable silence watching him do what he's doing. And because he's comfortable alone, we're comfortable watching him be alone. And then we're also comfortable trying to get to know him as well. There was a moment probably about halfway through the movie where I wrote in my notes, I don't fully understand why this guy is out here sailing alone. And then I realized that I didn't really need to understand that because he was so comfortable on the waves in his boat that this is just a natural place for him to be, or at least it's a place that he has made natural for himself to be in. And maybe that level of solitude is a wedge between him and whoever else is at home, whoever gifted him the instrument that he uses in order to get his bearings. Um, We don't need to know that information because all we need to know is that he is our man and he's somebody that whose survival that we also care about deeply. It's not just that he cares about surviving, it's that we care alongside him. Um, so if it wasn't obvious, I did enjoy this movie very much.
0: I, I'm really glad to hear that. It's an extraordinarily confident film. It's just the, the in direct, the directing and the performance. Um, and I think it gets at something that's, that's really... Um, fundamentally true which is that action is character Mm. Um, we don't need to get this get our man's backstory we don't need to have him mutter under his breath exposition so we understand where he's coming from Um, we don't need to have Redford overplay his fear or panic um, because we see him do and in watching him do we understand him we Mm -hmm. understand who he is and it takes a lot of guts to trust number one trust uh the audience to be up for that kind of storytelling uh confidence um to trust your performer I mean Redford he's so like I feel the fact that he's so good as a movie star um it sometimes eclipses the fact that he's also a very subtle actor and just uh, like his physicality. He uses his face and his body so well in this movie because he does, that's all he has. Um, Just like he, he mentions in that opening prologue, all he has is, is, is body and spirit. And there's not much of that. And Redford stretches it to its fullest potential here. And it's just, it's, there's a certain kind of pleasure to watching a craftsman, at the top of his game, do what he does best. And that can apply either to Redford, the actor, or our man, the character. Either Mm, one. mm -hmm. And I think maybe by the end of the movie the the boundary between them has kind of disappeared. And that feels like great acting to me. Um, And again, it's done solely through gesture, facial expression, um, just small little grimaces he makes that speak volumes. And Chander getting those out of him and also trusting him to provide what the movie needs to have momentum is really marvelous.
1: There's really nothing like a perfectly timed eye roll or exasperated sigh when your character has given you almost nothing of the sort up until that point. I think it was a little bit hard for me to read into our man at first without kind of trying to project myself on him. Maybe some of that is a little bit of my own experience. So in high school, my sport was sailing. And so this movie also resonates with me because I love sailing. I love the act of sailing. I'm not familiar with the kind of boat that he's on because it's much larger than the boats I was in. I was in just little one-person boats. And when you're out there, it's literally just you and the boat And the water and so watching our man kind of navigate his way around the boat part of me was wondering if he was as confident as the image of himself that he was projecting out there partly because I was not a particularly confident sailor to begin with I was also a teenager at the time Hmm. and so at first I think when the movie front loads the story with that final message that says literally all is lost kind of gives us the title right up uh, there, up front, and also gives us the point where we know that our man is going to end up getting, and then smash cut back to a week before, and we see him moving confidently around the boat, I feel like I needed a little bit of the time to understand just how competent and resourceful and confident he was on the water. And we get that fairly quickly, but for a moment there, I wasn't entirely sure, does this guy have any business being out there on the waves, or Is he out there essentially on a fool's errand or or is he attempting to do something that most people should not attempt to do? And the more time I spent with the movie, I think, the more I realized just how much I was underestimating this character, which was a really humbling thing to experience knowing that I had come to the movie with a specific set of expectations and I think the movie was confident enough to... Let me have those and then prove me wrong without having to feel like it was forcing an argument necessarily. And that's an act of faith, I think, on the filmmaker that is really difficult and I applaud them for it. I really
0: like also how this how this movie does kind of take this character's solitude and suggests that that is is his flaw without Hmm. coming out and saying it. It, It's both his greatest strength and his greatest flaw, which is true of a lot of us. A a lot of the times our flaws and our strengths are kind of complexly interwoven and almost inseparable from from each other, two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you get the sense that he is kind of this consummate sailor. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's about. He likes being out on the water. It's his passion. And yet we also get the sense that it's because of those things that he is alone on the water writing a message to somebody, we don't know who, who will probably never see it. And uh, he is expecting that he is going to die alone. Mm-hmm. And the final shot of the film is sort of the culmination of his character arc. He reaches out and he grasps a hand. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is it's, – it's, it's wonderful because the film has the, – the drama of the film has been – Mostly just, is this guy going to make it to the next to see the next day? It's not can he overcome his own character flaws? And yet by the end of the film, you realize, oh, that story has been being has been told in parallel with the na- man versus nature uh, conflict, and that's kind of cool that Chandor <laughs> is able to do that. And I think again, it's because it is it is pure cinema. He's he's basically showing something and meaning kind of arises from it without him necessarily having to wrestle it out of it i i think i don't know if you have you seen um the danny boyle film 127 hours the story about that m- biker who got trapped in the crevice and yeah kind of saw his own arm off
1: yeah i have not seen it for the reason that he saws his own arm off i mean
0: yeah the i mean that's a that You know, that's a rough scene. Um, it's a good movie. I, I like it quite a bit, actually. And I like James Franco in it as well. Mm. It's a total, and it's, it's got a kind of a similar thrust in that there's kind of this, you know, this man's man. He doesn't He doesn't think he needs anyone. Then he gets himself into a predicament. And the kind of the emotional arc of the film is him realizing that no man is an island. I do need other people. I need help. Mm. And the way Danny Boyle kind of, shapes that material is it's kind of this grand emotional climax Sigouras is playing on the soundtrack <laughs> James Franco you know the the camera's rotating and it's it's all these fireworks Chandor is so understated and basically doesn't need big musical stings he doesn't need a lot of uh actorly fireworks from Redford he just portrays the sky and trusts it trusts that meaning to come out of it By the time that hand clasp at the end comes, it's like a a key fitting in a lock. And that's really great filmmaking. It's great storytelling. And I think that that's kind of why, even though it is a very simple story, there are there are depths to it if you are paying attention.
1: So speaking Mm -hmm. of both music and depths, I did want to talk to you about the moment where music does finally make an appearance because there is a little bit of a score here And it's after our man has been forced to give up his ship, allow it to sink and um, take to a life raft. And for most of the movie up until this point, the camera has been very closely tied to the boat the same way that our man has been. And once we get a moment to breathe, once he's established himself in the life raft and has figured out that he's drifting and there's not really much that he can do except keep track of his progress on a chart and pray that he'll be picked up by somebody, um, the camera kind of takes a little bit of a departure from the life raft and we get to spend a little bit of time underwater watching the raft from below. And at this moment, the music does swell a little bit. It felt almost like a thumb on the scale to me, a little bit. I'm curious to know how you feel about it. But there's also some pretty remarkable underwater photography. Notably, there's two directors of photography for this movie. So there's Frank G. DeMarco, who is the DP, and then Peter Zuccarini shot the underwater scenes. And there are some sequences here, specifically when our man has taken to the life raft, where we spend a little bit of time with the undersea life there. And the first time we see anything It's a very small fish that's just sheltered a little bit briefly underneath the raft, and then we see um, a couple of other creatures, I think we see a sea slug kind of floating through the water. And the movie takes a moment to pause and rest and give us some time even away from the solitude of our man and in the vastness of the ocean. And it feels like I'm being really grandiose about what the movie is saying here. I don't think that it's trying to make any grand sweeping statements about how we're all just like, we're all drops in the ocean or something like that. I think the movie's a little bit too smart to make that kind of an observation. But it is smart enough to point out that this man is in solitude and he can't fully see everything else around him. And yet, at the same time, there is a lot of other life around him. It's just not the kind that's going to be able to sustain him. So. I did appreciate that moment and that that chance to be able to breathe, and I appreciated the moments when we do return back underwater and we see some of the other threats and the other fish that are following underneath him. But that musical cue is something that I think bothered me a little bit because it felt like it was almost putting a little bit too fine a point on that point. I mean,
0: I I I like that reading, and I can see where we're coming from about the the musical cue as well. I do think that that might be Chandor kind of just giving us a little something so that's mm-hmm. not entirely an austere experience. Um, he is kind of letting it, giving us, you know, giving us little drip drops of, you know, heartstring pulling, just sort of like maybe sustain us <laughs> a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't, it didn't bother me. Um, but I do like that read on the, the underwater shots, the way that it kind of contextualizes it because the, the, danger of a movie like this is that uh, being so laser focused on him, it can become kind of solipsistic or he it becomes less a movie about a person and more of a movie about how he's the only thing in the world that matters. Hmm. And just those underwater shots kind of show that, you know, there are fish kind of just living their lives. They don't know that he's, you know, on the brink of death. And it doesn't really matter to them. And it matters to us, the audience. And I think that um, counterpoint is—I don't know—it's just really good intuitive filmmaking. Like, it's not making a, a that fine of a point on it, but it's there, and it needs to be there to make sure that the film doesn't feel like this monomaniacal portrait of, kind of arguably a monomaniacal person, hmm. and kind of just—it's about more. And uh, yeah, it's—it's it's, like you said, it has depths.
1: Definitely. Yeah, I I do appreciate the moment. It's just a little bit of an artistic choice that I don't fully understand or probably just don't appreciate. Um, And that's nothing against the movie. It's just that didn't work for me. The one other thing that didn't work for me, I don't know if you noticed this or not, it feels like a quibble, because again, this is a very good movie. But there are a couple of moments where we get jump cuts, when our man is feeling despair. It's something that bothered me a little bit because I just wasn't fully expecting it. But he's looking over the depths. He realizes that he doesn't have any drinking water. And the camera cuts a little bit between his reaction and then a little bit of additional time. Didn't feel like it fully got the function of a jump cut because I couldn't tell how much time was supposed to be taking place. I didn't know if it was supposed to be just a picture of his despair or what. But I don't know. it, It felt... A little bit jumpier, for lack of a better word, versus some of the other assured direction, too. I mean, it's a quibble, to be perfectly fair. I
0: can imagine. So I can imagine a Tarkovsky version of this story (laughs) where he lets that moment play out in one long single take, and we just observe the reaction Mm -hmm. for. (laughs) I mean, knowing Tarkovsky, it would have been like five minutes. Oh, yeah, easily. But, but it would it, like that would be one tactic to not let the audience look away and really kind of uh, transfix our man kind of under the the gaze of the audience and just like not let him escape and not kind of draw the veil while he's having this very in- intense emotional reaction to something. Mm-hmm. I can see it both ways. I can see the virtues of that i the the jump cuts there might kind of be an illusion that is allowing our man a little bit of privacy, kind of like <laughs> one one of those rooms in a zoo, you know where the animal can go to so where it's not being constantly surveilled by <laughs> by the visitors. I don't know that's that's probably going a little bit too far, but I kind of that's maybe what I saw underlying that strategy, but <laughs> that that might just be. Yeah, I I might be going out on a limb there.
1: Yeah. I mean, it doesn't feel like going out on a limb. It just felt like a choice that jarred me just a little bit. Maybe it was intended to jar me, but it was something that kicked me just far enough out of the movie that I questioned its inclusion.
0: Mm -hmm. Fair.
1: And that's something that—that's a decision in this movie where I was not questioning the vast majority of those decisions because, again, it is a very assured hand— it's a very good movie. It's a fascinating character study and it's also just a really good picture of Robert Redford and his abilities and I don't know, I just I feel like I came away appreciating his acting capability um having watched this film too.
0: Yeah, man, we I yeah, I, I underestimate Redford to my shame sometimes, and then you know I see a movie like this or *The Old Man and the Gun* kind of his swan song, and man, he's just he's he's a good he's a cinematic treasure. <laughs> To be honest,
1: breaking news on seeing and believing. Robert Bre- Redford, he's a good actor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who could have guessed? Uh, well, well, listeners, that is our review of J.C. Chandor's 2013 film *All Is Lost*. Uh, if you've seen this film, I know that it got uh, nominated for Best Picture once upon a time, so it was kind of in the cultural conversation at one point. So, if you've seen this film, uh, as a result of. Watching along with us for this episode, or if you saw it back when it first came out, let us know your thoughts about what other hidden depths maybe did we not touch on with this discussion that you would like to see highlighted. Next week, Sarah, uh, I am going to be off. I'm going to be at a work function. I'm not gonna be out of this the seeing and believing game, but that does not mean that the show won't go on. You have got quite an episode planned for our listeners next week.
1: Work function is definitely one way to put maybe off at an assassin's conference, potentially
0: who can I, say. It is at a hotel. I am <laughs> going to play my cards close as to whether it has certain very special and specific rules though.
1: <laughs> Probably for the best. That seems like a good professional choice. Listeners, we are going to be reviewing John Wick Chapter 4 and I will be bringing back returning guest Abiel Chessy in order to be able to talk about John Wick. I'm really excited to have this conversation with her. She loves action movies about as much as I do, so I think it's going to be a really good time. And she's also bringing a watch list pick along with her. So um, I'm happy to say I have seen John Wick Chapter 4, so one of the many reasons why I'm looking forward to talking about it. But there are some references to Walter Hill's The Warriors, the 1979 movie in that film so abby has brought the warriors along as a watch list pick for me as well
0: well i i'm I'm going to be out of action as far as recording of the episode goes but i'll be playing along at home because i have not seen the warriors either excellent
1: so you can catch that movie on pluto tv and paramount plus and it's also available to rent on most of the usual suspects as well so listeners if you would also like to join in the action um, you can join us on The Warriors and hopefully also join us for our conversation about John Wick Chapter 4.
0: He is the man of sheer will, so I have heard. So it should be a good episode. I'm looking forward to hearing you and Abby talk about it. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Listeners, thanks once again for tuning in. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clawson, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan.
1: I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson.
0: And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing.